all I really saw was this is a prequel. Would this, you know, compel me to go buy the toy? And I'd like the cat. The rest of it I thought was just noise. And what I thought was missing, and I'm going to give it back to you because I know you have things you want to say about what you just asked me, but what I thought was missing was they could have so easily brought in so many of the things they brought out about Buzz Lightyear that were funny, and they could have just thrown them in there for, you know, people who've watched the other movies. For example, the way Mrs. Potato Head always swooned when Buzz Lightyear accidentally goes into Spanish mode. I thought that was a missed opportunity for an easy laugh. So I don't know what the screenwriters were thinking. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're gonna talk about Lightyear and Elvis. So Mike, these are two movies that I think must have been released with great expectations because they're both hoping to capitalize on the subjects and to, you know, get that summer blockbuster movie receipts. So we're going to start with Lightyear. And I wanted to start off by saying that I had such high expectations for this movie because the Toy Story movies are just such high quality movies. So many great memories they dredge up from your childhood, every toy you've ever owned, the sense you had that, you know, secretly your toys were alive when you weren't looking. I was expecting so much more from this. How about you? You know, I was not the biggest fan of Toy Story, but I always enjoyed it. And so when people express their enthusiasm and lasting enthusiasm, I can understand that. So again, it's not entirely my cup of tea, as they say, but I could see how it taps into those nostalgic strands or strains from childhood, obviously. So anyway, long story short, it's a really enjoyable franchise. Here's the issue you run into. When you have something as commercially successful and as culturally resonant as Toy Story, you get into, you know, sequelitis. You have all these sequels coming out, and those actually, for the most part, work pretty well with the Toy Story saga. What you also have, and for various franchises, is the decision to make, should we go with a sequel or a prequel? And, you know, I think what they did here, even though my overall feelings about Lightyear are so-so, eh, I mean, it, it's all right, it's, it's nothing great, but it's okay. What I did like about it conceptually was that it's very much a prequel, and there's a kind of logic, a kind of narrative logic to setting it up as a prequel. I want to give an exact quote, which will, well, I'm not spoiling anything here. This comes at the very beginning of the movie. You get text at the beginning of the film that says this, and I'll quote exactly because it's a sacred text, right, for Toy Story fans. In 1995, a boy named Andy got a toy from his favorite movie. This is that movie, close quote. And I thought that was actually conceptually a very smart way to set things up, even though the overall results are sort of meh, uh, you know, okay, nothing great. I thought the premise of it, the, the underpinnings for it actually are, are, again, as I say, you know, really well thought out and very encouraging in terms of what you can do with this sort of origin story, if you will. How did you feel about that? Like I said, I had expectations because I loved the Toy Story franchise, and I thought each iteration that came had its own magic, including the last one, which I thought was meant for people our age, Mike, where you've kind of gone beyond really believing in the toys and yet you sort of still do. I just think each movie had just hit great notes about your favorite toys and, you know, the sort of magic you enter into when you're playing with them or you pretend everything is real that's going on in your mind. The disappointment for me for Lightyear was when they said, you know, this is the movie that Andy saw that made him want the toy. 
I didn't get it. I didn't think that this movie would make me want to buy that toy. It was just so okay. And I understand that it ushers in the Toy Story franchise, but I expected more of the cleverness of the toys are alive kind of thing that makes Toy Story so, the whole Toy Story franchise so watchable and so entertaining. This was just, it was like a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, very much so. That's why I had this sense that conceptually, it's a great premise, a way to explain and justify, you know, this prequel. I thought that was really smart. Then, though, there is the execution of it. And this is Marie's point. She and I agree very strongly. As I was watching it, it wasn't on a Saturday morning. It was was a Saturday afternoon, I suppose. And the point, all joking aside here, is that watching it, I thought this is really like a Saturday cartoon. Nothing really, really blatantly wrong with it. It goes by agreeably. It's fun to watch. The audience I saw it with in the theater, you know, seemed to like it well enough. But I couldn't blame people who are going out for popcorn. You know, it, it is the sort of thing where you, if you walk out for a few minutes and come back, it's, it's kind of surfing on, on a certain level there. And for me, and there's an expression I use a lot, and, and I'll try not to use it quite so often in the future, but what I think of as franchise fatigue, when you feel like you've pretty much done what you can with a franchise. And I think even though there's the cleverness of this premise in terms of, you know, here's the movie that the kid, you know, watched from 1995. Okay, but that's just the opening text. That's the premise. Then you have the the following feature film, which is nothing special. And where I become somewhat cynical in the case of a franchise like this is it's all about the marketing, in this case, literally the merchandising. I mean, there are so many movies of recent vintage where they are like based on a video game or based on a toy or something. And then you realize this is really weird. I mean, if you go back in in Hollywood history, you just wouldn't find things like that typically where there's a toy that comes out and suddenly there's a movie based on the toy. And then there are sequels to it and prequels to it. And I think at some point you have to sort of say, okay, enough is enough. I mean, I know you want to sell more toys, but, you know, at some point there is that sort of creative exhaustion that kicks in. Let me get your feelings on this, because I think the earlier films in the franchise, and you're a bigger fan of it than I am, admittedly, but I will readily and happily concede that the earlier films oftentimes were very funny. And they work for both child and adult audiences. That they, they really were like for all patrons to enjoy. This one, it seems to me, is more in a lot of ways for the kids, just in the sense of it, it's busy, it's happy, it keeps moving, it's not boring, but there's nothing really distinctive. And I'm not finding in this one a lot of the verbal and visual cleverness that I think the earlier installments had. What's your sense of that? I agree with you completely. I mean, when I think about the Toy Story franchise, I think of all the clever things they did with the barrels full of monkeys and the Mr. Potato Head and stuff. But of course, this is a movie that's supposed to be set in space. It's not about toys. It spins off into toys. But if you're going to do that, the story has to be more compelling. You know, and I I don't know if I'm being too hard on the movie because no matter what movie that goes out that's supposed to be for kids there's always going to be kids who like it for whatever reasons that they like it they're not judging it like well i don't think this you know is a good you know addition to the toy story canon that's not what kids think they either relate to the characters or not mike what i want to ask you is i did not think that chris evans replacing tim allen was a problem i mean he still sounded like buzz lightyear to me but do you think that the sort of cynical funniness of tim allen as we know him as an actor and other things. Do you think that replacing him sort of, do you think it lessened the impact of what you expected Buzz Lightyear to be and sound like? Well, it's an interesting question. Essentially, on the vocal level, if you will, 
Chris Evans is fine. You know, watching it, you know, he fits the role. I mean, vocally fits the role. Not an issue, basically. I had to remind myself periodically that, you know, oh, we used to have Tim Allen, now it's Chris Evans. Okay, that's almost an academic note, just, of you know, whose voice am I hearing? Where it falls short, and I think this is essentially what you're getting at is, I wouldn't blame the vocal actor at that point, because he's voicing it in the way he should voice it. The problem there is more script-related, isn't it? I mean, whoever's reading the lines is reading the lines. If the lines ain't there, they ain't there. And so if Tim Allen had to read the same lines with the same narrative um, construction, it, it would play the same way. If, if it played any funnier, it would simply be because Tim Allen, I, I would say, is, you know, more versatile, if you will, in terms of, you know, vocal inflection and what you can do with a line. So I might, I might make some concessions that way that he could milk a line for more laughs. But push come to shove, I don't think it would make a difference at the performative level. I think it's really at the scripted level where they just essentially made what you very astutely referred to as a Saturday afternoon cartoon. And then, you know, you could do a lot worse, but you could also do a lot better. You know, if you can sit there and, and watch it while you're eating cereal, you know, in your house, that's a different kind of experience. What I did like, I did like the animatronic cat. I did think that cat was actually pretty funny. But that's the problem I had is that I wanted the toy about the cat, not about the main character. The cat, I thought, kind of stole the show toy-wise. But I also thought it was missing the foil that we liked in so much in the Toy Story franchise, which is Tom Hanks. You know, Tom Hanks gets to be, you know, kind of just the good guy. And Buzz Lightyear is this exciting new toy who can do different things. And he dazzles everybody and sort of steals Tom Hanks's character's thunder. And that's what that tension is what I think makes the Toy Story franchise work. And this was missing. It's just you're just supposed to assume that Buzz Lightyear is is the alpha. It's the character you want to follow without question. There's no person challenging his, you know, importance. I thought that was actually what was missing from the movie. What did you think? Yeah, tension is a good word to use because this film has what should be tension, but it's not quite there. You know, you know, plot wise, you're essentially you've got, you know, people stranded on a planet and you got, you know, try to run this mission to get off of it. And without getting into the physics, much less the metaphysics of it, somehow when Buzz goes on these test flights to try to break through to blah, 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 and so on, it's just as if, you know, he's the same person, comes back the same age, but the other people in his community, if you will, they're all aging. So I don't want to spoil what's a really kind of convoluted and silly story anyway, but essentially, you know, the, the metaphysical gist of it is, as the story goes along, he's, you know, basically the same guy, but the other people, you know, every time he returns from a mission or, or you know, a, a failed flight attempt, and, and I'll let it go at that, they've all aged. So essentially, he's dealing with some of the same characters, but they've gotten a lot older, and then you have to deal with all that. To me, it's just sort of a model at that point, because it doesn't, like, in any serious way, really comment on that to a great extent. It's just sort of a given that they're going to be older. And yeah, they have to talk about it and deal with it. But let me turn it over to you on, and I realize I've been a little vague with the storyline, but I think, you know, viewers should be able to discover things for themselves, right? So there are aspects of the story that I think you can discover for yourself. But where I want to turn it back over to you, Marie, is to talk about the central relationship between the Lightyear character and a character named Alicia and Alicia's relationships, because this is where the film is, if not eyebrow raising, at least curious in some ways as to material that we're getting in an animated film that is directed at a general audience, including a lot of kids. So I'll have a lot more to say about that, but let me turn it back over to you in terms of what you made then of you know the community that, that Buzz is living in, 
the challenge he's facing in terms of the, the plight they're in, situation they're in, and then how he deals with all that in part through the, a large part through his relationship with this character, Alicia Hawthorne. I am sorry to say that that relationship didn't even register with me. All I really saw was this is a prequel. Would this, you know, compel me to go buy the toy? And I'd like the cat. The rest of it I thought was just noise. And what I thought was missing, and I'm going to give it back to you because I know you have things you want to say about what you just asked me, but what I thought was missing was they could have so easily brought in so many of the things they brought out about Buzz Lightyear that were funny, and they could have just thrown them in there for, you know, people who'd watch the other movies. For example, the way Mrs. Potato Head always swooned when Buzz Lightyear accidentally goes into Spanish mode. I thought that was a missed opportunity for an easy laugh. So I don't know what the screenwriters were thinking. So Mike, I'm, I'm going to give it to you. What, what do you want to All say? Right. Let, <laughs> me let me comment more extensively on the noise that you referred to. And I think you're absolutely right. The story is basically a model. It, it really, it just sort of goes by and I don't find myself contemplating it, but I will for the, for the sake of argument right here. As I mentioned earlier, each of Buzz's test flights, if you will, only lasts a few minutes but it equals four years on the planet's surface. So please don't ask me to explain that, but those are the rules of the game, okay? And within his community, there's a woman named Alicia, and you're absolutely right. In the film, their relationship, when I say that, I mean their friendship, their connection, it's established, but it's really all vague and on the surface, and you know, you could easily just let it go by. The potentially controversial aspect of it for perhaps some viewers is that Alicia will marry a woman. And what I liked about the film was the fact that it was presented so matter-of-factly, that you have this same-sex relationship, Alicia and this other woman, and there it is. And again, in the film, believe me, it's not a relationship in depth. It's not a major plot point. You could go out for popcorn and sort of miss it. So it's almost tangential to the storyline itself. But within the muddled story is this narrative strand of Alicia with another woman. So on the one hand, what I liked about it was just that I want to see movies, more movies, in which that kind of relationship is matter of fact. It's just, okay, you know, here's my significant other, here's my, you know, marital partner, however you want to describe this, and there it is, and then you just get on with the story. So it's just as well, perhaps, that it doesn't dwell on that. When I say it's potentially controversial, it actually has been controversial in at least a few countries. The film has been banned in Malaysia and in the United Arab Emirates and in perhaps a few other places, because again, depending on your own belief system, you know, if you disapprove of that kind of same-sex partnership, that uh, it would be enough right there to essentially censor the film or keep it off of the screens. So the reason I found it interesting was that on the one hand, I like the fact that it's so matter of fact, it's just built into the story, not worth commenting on. I mean, I'm commenting on the fact that it's not worth commenting on. But on the other hand, the fact that movies are marketed internationally, and by doing that, you are automatically, I would say, with the political climate, inviting a situation where some countries simply aren't going to allow it on the screen. How do you feel about that? I think you're raising a really good point in that you want any movie to, to have a, a wide audience. And especially if it's for kids, you want it to have a wide audience. And if you're going to do something daring where you throw something out there and, and try to make it to sort of, let's just, you know, it's just a fact of life. You know, we, we don't even really need to, you know, focus on it that much. It's a shame that kind of idea will get lost by people just refusing to show it at all. So I like the sentiment behind it. Unfortunately, I just don't think the movie is good enough to get there. And I wish it was better. I went in really wanting to like it. 
But I will say, this does give us a great segue in terms of Tom Hanks, because of course, Tom Hanks in the Toy Story series is Woody, who is Buzz Lightyear's friend. And also the Buzz Lightyear, when he shows up, he's, he's there to replace Woody. And that's that, you know, goody two shoes role we're very used to Tom Hanks embodying. So in the movie Elvis, when he plays Colonel Tom Parker, what a different role. So let's start there, Mike. What did you think of Tom Hanks in this very unlikable role? Well, let me say something first, and then I'll talk about Tom Hanks. Just as a reminder of what a cultural icon Elvis Presley was and still is, Indeed, this is a movie that can be called Elvis, and you don't need to nudge somebody and say, I mean Presley. We all know who that is. And I had some firsthand exposure. I never saw Elvis perform live. Elvis was only 42 when he died in 1977, and at that point became even more legendary, if you will. So several years after Elvis died, I wrote a newspaper story about a fan club, an Elvis Presley fan club in Baltimore, because Baltimore was one of the biggest towns for Elvis fans. You know, if I could talk about it demographically for a moment, working class white women, you know, who would have been girls or teenagers in the 50s and 60s and who were so devoted to Elvis that after he died, if anything, they were even, they had shrines in their house, they had club meetings, all this. I'm not exaggerating whatsoever. So anyway, several years after he died in 77, I interviewed some of the women who belonged to a Baltimore Elvis Presley fan club. And I was very serious and very straightforward about it. I'm not looking to make fun of anybody here. I'm just curious about the phenomenon. The reason in particular I decided to write about it was they had gathered together a petition which they were sending to the Pope in Rome. They wanted to have Elvis Presley declared a saint. And I kept my poker face and professional demeanor as I interviewed him. I said, well, you know, for one thing, he wasn't Roman Catholic. I mean, if that makes a difference. And I said, number two, in his personal life, and you know, whether we talk about philandering, drugs, any number of things, maybe he wasn't always so saintly in his behavior, whatever. They were not deterred. They were adamant that he was such a great man that he should be a, a declared a saint by the Pope. Now, not many fan clubs would go to that extreme, would they? So this is a movie that really, you know, feeds into that continuing fascination with Elvis Presley, whether sainted or not. To your question directly, the movie's called Elvis. It almost should be called Elvis and Tom because mm -hmm. it really focuses as much on, on Colonel uh, Tom Parker as, as it does on Elvis Presley. I don't think that works here. For, I, don't, I have mostly negative feelings about this film and some of them pertain very directly to the Tom Hanks character as, or he, as he plays the character of, of the Colonel. The film on the one hand points out that, well, you know, he wasn't a Colonel, you know what, you know, he, he actually was Dutch, you know, he, he wasn't, and so it, it gives a sense of the mysterious aura around this controlling, Bengali-like figure who controls Elvis Presley's career. But then it only takes that so far. It never becomes really investigative as in, well, who actually was he? Beyond stating that he was Dutch born and, and, and not really a Colonel. In fact, Presley teases him about that, calls him Admiral. So there are things in the film that you know go down that road, but not very far down that road. So that's kind of frustrating. Equally frustrating is the fact that in his public appearances, Colonel Tom Parker didn't really talk with a Dutch accent. Tom Hanks does extensively, so much so that it's irritating. It's like, who or what is this guy? Almost like right off the boat kind of thing in terms of a really thick accent, which is not really true to at least what I, I know of Tom Parker in terms of you know his public persona. Privately, maybe it was, it was a bit different. But the Tom Hanks characterization is not just that he's on screen so much as the colonel, but he's the narrator. 
And he tells us at the very beginning of the story, you know, uh, I did not kill Elvis, I made Elvis. And of course, the film sort of shows otherwise. And then he, and he says, again, another point that he's not, he being the colonel, is not the villain of this here story. So a lot of emphasis is placed on that character. I got to say, Tom Hanks' performance was very disappointing for me because I thought it was like a live action cartoon. Speaking of animated films, I thought it was cartoonish. It didn't get very deep into, in terms of who he was. But you know what? Overall, the film was disappointing for me because it has a really heavy handed script. It hits the biographical points that it should hit, but it's like with a sledgehammer sometimes. And to very quickly state one of my other major disappointments here, we all know the shocking contrast between images of Elvis Presley at the beginning of his career, mid 50s, and then what he was like at the end of the career. You know, that youthful energy and the vivacious stage presence at the beginning of the career, and then that bloated, corpulent figure in his final, you know, 10 to 15 years, which was really still shocking to see some of those images. This is where the film really falls down. The actor, Austin Butler, who plays Elvis Presley, looks really appropriate in the early scenes. And the scenes that work best are of him on stage, the physicality of the performance. He's really, some of it's terrific, actually. It's really exciting to watch some of that concert footage. Speaking of which, in the concert footage, it's a digital remix. And when I say digital remix, what I mean is it's usually primarily Elvis Presley's voice we're hearing in the songs, but occasionally Austin Butler's voice is also there. So, so as, they're, as they're equalizing things and playing with levels, it's push come to shove, it's Elvis, but occasionally you do get the actor's voice coming in as well. Anyway, cutting to the chase, that works really well in the circa 1955 performances, let's say, on stage, where it doesn't work at all well, it's terrible actually, is in Elvis's later years. Admittedly, when it gets to 1977, his final year of life, through prosthetics, they show a bloated Elvis Presley, and, he, and finally something that's close to how bad he actually looked at that point. But you know what? Into the early to mid-1970s, and, and the film spends more time actually on the later career than the early career. So in all those late, and it's a very long film, so in those later scenes in the late 60s into the 70s, the actor, Austin Butler still looks the same as he looked in 1955. They uh, don't even make any attempt to change his appearance. I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're hearing references to drug use and this and that, and people mentioning the weight gain. I'm looking, he's as skinny as ever. <laughs> what weight gain are they talking about? And it's just, it's a very sloppy film in a lot of ways, very meticulous, very careful with production design and in technical categories, but simultaneously in a puzzling way, very sloppy in other ways. So I could, you know, even though the film, you know, held my interest for all of its 159 minutes, there's a lot that for me just doesn't work. And so that starts at the top with the presentation of the Elvis Presley figure and yes, with the presentation of, of Colonel Tom Parker. So I didn't actually care for any of that in terms of the way those characters are presented in the film. So with all those negative comments, all those aspersions I'm casting, let me cast it back to you. I loved this movie. And I think it's because I saw it on Screen X, which when I signed, you know, bought the ticket I didn't even know what that was and when I sat down I found out what it was which is you've got the image on the screen in front of you but they're also projecting on the two sides of the walls you know to the sides of you so it wrapped around you and what I thought worked was I mean first of all it's Elvis Presley's music how can you not you know the music was great they had a pretty good Priscilla Presley 
which is very believable. The details, like the saltine crackers on top of the refrigerator, I just thought was was just so on point. But I think what really made the movie for me was Baz Luhrmann as the director, because the last big thing I remember seeing from him in the theater was Moulin Rouge, which is sort of the same kind of story, which is, you know, this group of ragtag people who are, you know, in the carnival circuit, you know, glitter and costumes and performance. And when I saw Moulin Rouge afterwards, my sister Julie said to me, God, it was like being trapped in an elevator with the circus. And so going into Elvis, I remembered that and I thought, oh my God, we're back in the elevator. And it really was, it did deliver in that way. He's great with that kind of story. Now I'm going to agree with you that Tom Hanks's accent, all I kept thinking was Colonel Clink and Hogan's Heroes. It was so, I don't know artificial. That did not work. But you needed that character. You needed that foil. Kind of like I was saying, what's missing in Lightyear is Tom Hanks as Woody. I thought the reason that the Elvis movie succeeded was it showed Elvis Presley, his talent and everything, juxtaposed against Colonel Parker, who came along to manage him and took advantage of him. And yet you see, I don't know, he did do some good things for him. He was instrumental in some ways, but at the same time, it's that, you know, that sneaky snake in the garden that comes to ruin everything. I thought that actually gave the, the movie the right tension that you could see. How did you end up in Vegas for so many years when that isn't what you wanted to do? Because somebody else was in charge. And I thought that was um, necessary to have Tom Hanks play that, the Colonel Parker character, to get that understanding for the audience where you realize he could have done so much more. The saving grace is Elvis music. It's wonderful in this film. It's really exciting. It's, it's what kept me with the film for all those hours I was watching it. But the characterizations are really shallow, whether Elvis or, or the Colonel, or for that matter, Elvis's parents and Priscilla. They come and they go. If you look at Priscilla, she's not on screen that, that much, and it essentially gets the character, but there's no real depth to it. So again, and what's there is really heavy-handed. It really clubs you with the R&B influences that shaped Elvis, which are all true and important to state, but boy, it just hits you again and again with that. What I really disliked about the film so much, actually, and we'll have to agree to disagree on this one, is director Baz Luhrmann. I, I disliked this film for the same reason that I disliked Moulin Rouge all those years ago. There's a kind of pointless technical virtuosity that Luhrmann has. He, he's flashy. He shows off with the camera work and the editing. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it's just there to wow you. And so even though there is some wow level uh, excitement with the technical aspects of the film and certainly the production design, it is really just after a while whiplash inducing. It doesn't always really work to the favor of the film. And so I think it's what Lerman is referred to as quote unquote heightened artifice. And I think in, the, in this case, he just gets carried away with it. And, and for me, after a while, it just seems almost irritating that, well, why did you put the camera there? Why did you cut there? Just like, well, because he could, because it's exciting and fast and all that. And to me, you need a little more logic, a little more motivation. Occasionally, if the film had slowed down and had some dramatic scenes that went on for a few minutes without all that quick cutting, I might have cared more about these characters. And if the script had allowed them to have a little more depth, I wouldn't have felt like I was always bouncing around from here to there. So it hits the high points and the low points of the career, but in such a superficial way that it was very disappointing. And again, what carried me was just that really exciting music. And it's worth seeing for that reason. And hearing the way in which hip hop is brought into the, the soundtrack, and particularly in the end credits to show like the, the way in which people are still sampling Elvis Presley. The, it, not just the original music that's still vibrant, but what you can still do with it and especially do with it today. 
should probably say that I absolutely love Moulin Rouge for all the reasons that you hated it. I mean, if you want somebody to give you like this story of the Carnival Barker's point of view, Baz Luhrmann is your man. So I think anybody out there who's on the fence, go see it in that Screen X. You'll just be mind blown. You'll be there with Elvis as he's going through a lot of, you know, iconic moments. And of course, like you said, Mike, the music's amazing. It's way too long. But everybody in that theater stayed to the bitter end because they wanted to hear the rest of the song before the credits finally finished rolling. But that does bring us to the end of our episode, Mike. Don't forget to check out our other episodes on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. Also, they can be found in Spotify and Pandora under Dragon Digital Radio. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.